Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bone till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction. So their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Verse 8. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Egypt, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it and in the preaching and hearing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words inspired by your spirit and profitable for us. Write them upon the tables of our hearts. Enable us to receive them with faith and love, to lay them up in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue in this series on Zephaniah. The last four Sabbaths, we looked at chapter 1. In the first week, incomplete reformation judged. We looked at chapter 2 in the following week, or a solemn call to repentance. Then we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. She received not correction, or the importance of being teachable in the true religion and worship of God. Then last week in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we looked at surely thou wilt fear me, or the critical place of Scripture as the light and revelation of God's standard, God's rules. We also saw that God's presence was unto Israel unto judgment, and therefore we must learn to fear the Lord, to receive his instruction and correction, to seek for his kingdom and glory rather than like Israel corrupting all of our ways early in the morning. Now then, let's come to verse 8, a pure language. We'll look at verses 8 through 10. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. 
for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. First, God says, therefore wait ye upon me. Why is that? Well, it's because of what he just said in verse 7. Because I rose early and sent you prophets, and you rose early and corrupted yourselves, therefore, he says, wait, wait ye upon me. Because you did not fear me, nor receive correction, but returned evil for good, therefore wait, I will pay you back. I will bring tribulation and wrath and anguish on every soul of man that doeth evil, as the apostle says. Now this instruction to wait upon God, we normally expect is for believers. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, right? Here God says to both believers and unbelievers, you must all wait upon me, for I'm coming to judgment. That's for the wicked. But then we'll see in verse 9, there's consolation for the godly. Wait upon me, you godly people, because I have plans for you. I have consolation for you. Now, he says... Wait ye upon me, saith the Lord. And there's a normal way that God says he's speaking to us. Thus saith the Lord. Ko amar Yahweh. It means I am thinking thoughts and I now deliver those thoughts to you so that you can hear my thoughts. That's what thus saith the Lord means. Here he doesn't say that. Here he just says the utterance of Jehovah. He doesn't say he's speaking. He just uses a noun, utterance. Now, hear what I'm about to utter. This speech I'm about to make is extremely important. Listen to it as an expression of my will, not necessarily of my mind in that sense. Not that God is not thinking, of course not. But here he's uttering words, and you should hang on my words. That's what he's saying. Hang on my words. Wait upon me. Listen to what I'm saying. The same phrase is used when Abraham offered up his son Isaac and God says, By myself have I sworn utterance of the Lord, or saith the Lord. You corrupt nation who corrupts all your ways, listen carefully to my utterance. That's what he's saying. Until, he says, the day that I rise up to the prey. Now it's very interesting The Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call it the Septuagint because 70 men were supposedly to have translated it in 70 days. But in any case, it says, until the day of my resurrection. That's what they translated this to say. Unto the day of my resurrection. Until I rise up. Until that day of the resurrection when I come to spoil or to make a prey of all my adversaries. God comes as a conquering king, as a general in the armies of the Lord to have a prey and a spoil of his adversaries. God says, For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms. This is God's determination. It's literally his judgment, his decree, his ordinance is to gather the nations. God has ordained, in other words, a day of judgment. Please open to Matthew chapter 3, the preaching of John the baptizer. Matthew chapter 3. John is going to speak of a judgment. We read verses 5 through 7 together. Then went out to him, Jerusalem... 
and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Listen. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Wait, sorry. This is the King James. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This literally means from the destined wrath, from the decreed wrath, from the inevitable wrath. Who warned you, he asks them, to flee from that determined wrath? Please turn over to Acts chapter 17, page 1117, 1117. The apostle has been preaching at Athens. He was provoked by their idols everywhere to come and to preach to them a message about repentance. Starting there at verse 30 of Acts 17. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Notice here. God appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. God decreed this day. God has determined this day. God has destined this day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he even ordained and marked out the man who will be the judge. The judge has already been chosen. The judge was marked out by his resurrection. That man, he will judge all men. He will raise everyone from the dead. They will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God has ordained a day. And there is a final day, a final day of judgment. As there was a day of judgment for Israel, foreshadowing that great day of judgment, so God has ordained a final judgment. In that day, he says, he will pour upon them his indignation, even all his fierce anger. They provoked him by returning evil for good. Remember, he rose up early and brought his judgments to light. They rose up early in response and didn't repent. They corrupted all their ways. They returned evil for good. So God will pour out the fierceness of his anger. Prepare then to meet your God. Are you outside of Christ? Flee to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sheltered from the wrath of Almighty God. Are you in Christ? Then in the words of the blessed Apostle Peter, grow in grace and in knowledge. Please open to 2 Peter chapter 3. How is it that we believers can improve on this day of judgment? Peter tells us. He tells us what we should think and what we should do. Verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, page 1228 of your pew Bibles. 1,228. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt 
with fervent heat. And notice, this is all what Zephaniah is talking about. The fierce anger of God, the pouring out of his wrath. There's a day in which this will happen. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Okay, yes, there's a day of judgment. What does that mean for me? I believe in Christ. Everything's taken care of, right? Well, in a sense, yes, that is correct. You are sheltered in Jesus Christ. You're justified by his righteousness. That's great. But Peter doesn't end there, does he? What manner of persons should you be, he says, in all holy conversation? Now, conversation, sometimes we think, I'll call you on the phone, we'll have a conversation, we'll talk. That's not what that means in the Bible. That means every which way you turn, every single path you walk in, whether it's in your words, whether it's in your deeds, whether it's in your thoughts, whether it's in your affections, whether it's in your memory, whether it's in your learning, your working, whatever it is, all your conversations should be holy. It should be devoted to God. You should be seeking His glory in everything that you do. That's how you make application of that day of judgment. That's how we apply as believers these truths to ourselves. Not just that. Not just holy conversation and conduct, but God-likeness. This is the fear of God. This is the first table of the law. No other gods. No divided loyalties, in other words. No false worship. No worshiping the work of your own hands. No using God's names, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his works in some kind of flippant sort of way as if it's a vain thing to think about the name of God. No violating his Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Dedicate it. Devote it unto him. Rest from all your labors and your own pleasures and seek his glory. Godliness. All of our lives are to be devoted to God because God's going to burn up this world and all of its evil works and he's going to purify a new heavens and a new earth and therefore, he says, you should be this way. You ought to be a certain type of people. You are morally obliged, he's saying. That's what that word ought means. You are under a moral obligation, believers, to be a holy people in all that you do. To keep the first table of the law and to fear God. Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. This is our duty. This is what we ought to make of the coming day of God. Be ye holy. That's what he's saying. Be diligent. Oh, that'll take care of itself. Let's not be too precise about this. Don't worry about the details that God outlines in the scriptures. No, it's not a big deal. He's got it covered. You got your fire insurance. That's all you need for that day of fire, right? Wrong. You ought, he says, to be 
all your conversation devoted to God. Ye ought to be godly. You ought to be diligent to be found of him in peace. Remember the way of peace they have not known? This is God's way of peace. Not being spotted by your sins or by the world. Being without someone casting an accusation and it sticks. That's what it means to be blameless. They can cast an accusation, but it won't stick against you. That's what elders are supposed to be. That's what every Christian is to strive to be. Blameless. Does not mean sinless, but blameless. Without public scandal. Without some corruption of note. Be a holy people, in other words. Grow in grace and in knowledge. Be diligent in these things. Cultivate the life of God in your soul. That's what Peter's saying in light of this day of judgment. Please turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3. Continuing there in verse 8. Why is it that we should wait on God? Because he's determined this day he'll pour out his indignation, he says, even his fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. The Geneva notes say, seeing that you will not repent, you can expect my vengeance as well as other nations, not just the Gentiles, but you also, the whole earth, every nation, the fire is coming. God will visit their iniquity. This is the same fervent heat of which Peter spoke. He's talking about the flames of God's justice coming down on the wicked. Verse 9, Zephaniah 3, 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Do you recall I mentioned that both the wicked and the godly had to wait upon the Lord from verse 8? Here's the godly being addressed. You wicked people, you can expect me to bring vengeance and flames of fire against you. You godly people, here's some hope. Here's some consolation. In the midst of the judgment I'm bringing on your people, I have plans to save. I have plans to restore. He says, for then will I turn or return, or convert. That's the idea here. This is the reason God says to wait upon him, for I will turn. This is why God will judge. God will humble the pride of man so that he can change him. When we're full, we forget God, don't we? Just like God warned, beware, lest you're filled with all the good things and you forget the Lord your God. Now God says, I bring fire against you. And then when that happens, what? Then I will change you. Then I will convert you. Then I will call you out of darkness into God's marvelous light. I will convert, I will change, I will transform, I will overthrow, I will turn about. God will convert the people to a true, to a heavenly vocabulary, to a confession of the lips and a worship of God that he calls pure. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, or literally to the peoples, all the peoples of the earth. They will be converted to a pure lip. Do you kids remember in the book of Genesis when all the people were of one speech? 
They all had one thing they talked about. Let's look at this. Open to Genesis chapter 11, please. Genesis 11, page 10 of your pew Bibles. That's a little easier than 1117, isn't it? Page 10, 10. Verse 1 of chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Now this word language means the lip because that's what you talk through, right? That's the same word that he talked about as a pure lip back in Zephaniah. Same Hebrew word. All the earth was of one lip and of one speech and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they, made, they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Wait a second, I've heard that. Something about filling the earth about subduing the earth. There was something, oh yeah, God said, go fill the earth, go multiply, go fill the earth and exercise dominion over it. And they say, no, I'm not going. We speak the same thing. Our doctrine is centralize, build up into heaven and not do what God says. That's their goal. That's their game. That's their civil government. We're going to cast off God. Oh, are you? How's that going to work out for you? You think that's going to work? Wrong. God brings confusion and judgment on their singular what? Their lip. He causes them all to be incapable of speaking to each other. He confuses and therefore this place is called Babel because nobody understands anybody else. They're all divided. They seek for unity in the created order and God says, you can't have that. I will cut you off. I'll make it impossible. They have an impure lip, don't they? And they all share that impure and profane lip of rebellion against Almighty God. Please turn over to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19, page 722 of your pew Bibles. We'll start our reading at verse 18. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan. They will have the heavenly Canaan, the words of God. Notice, and swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. Do you recognize any of this language God uses about Egypt here? Do you know who he used to use that language about? Say, oh, I don't know, in the book of Judges, in the book of Exodus. Does that sound familiar? Yes. 
That's the language God used of his chosen people, Israel. Now he says, when I go down to Egypt, what language will they speak? Will they have an impure lip? No. They will speak the language of Canaan. They will confess and worship the true God. They will have an altar in the midst of their land and a pillar at the border, just like they had in the book of Joshua. They will be God-fearing. They will have a Savior who's sent to deliver them from their sins. God will adopt them into his family. God will call them his people, verse 25. He will call Assyria, the other enemies of Israel. He will call them the work of his hands and Israel his inheritance. God will restore to the once alienated Gentiles. He will restore to them a pure lip. He will give them a language that is suited and restored to the worship of God. Rather than defying God, they will be bowing before him. This is the work of God in the times of the New Testament. God restoring a singular lip to his enemies, the pure faith and religion and obedience rather than the rebellion, the division, the idolatry and irreligion of Babel. This lip is said to be a pure lip. Literally, this means that it is purified, it is selected, it is chosen, it is cleansed, it is made to shine, it is polished or morally purified. Jerome actually says God will give them an elect lip, chosen by God, in other words, like Israel was. This is the lip. An elect lip will be given to them, the language of Canaan. Why? Why will God give them this lip? All the peoples that he just finished judging, why is he going to give them this lip? He tells us, verse 9, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's goal. True doctrine and true speech lead to true worship. That's what he's saying. Doctrine, or the lip, or what we say, our confession of faith, literally confession means to say together with. We say this together. It's our confession. The doctrine and confession of the mouth has its end in worship. Why will he restore a pure lip? That they may call upon the name of the Lord. This is one of the principal elements of worship. In fact, if you look at the patriarchal time, and you say, how did they worship God? called upon the name of the Lord. If you look in the days of Moses, how did they worship God? They called on the name of the Lord. The days of David, they called on the name of the Lord. Right now in the New Testament, we call upon the name of the Lord. This is a universal element of worship throughout all ages. God restores to them a pure and elect, a a cleansed lip or language so that they may call upon him in worship. Doctrine leads to doxology. Promises end in prayer. Salvation reaches its full expression in singing. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 begins the doctrinal section of Romans. That section closes in chapter 11 verse 36 with what? A doxology. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. That's how doctrine ends. That's God's intention, that doctrine ends in doxology. Let us then know our doctrines in a doxological way. When you read the Bible, ask yourself something. 
what is it that God is telling me about himself in this passage, in this verse, in this chapter, in this book? Ask yourself that question. And then when you realize what he's saying, what's the next step? Praise God. Offer to him as you read about him in his word. Well, is there a promise here? I should rejoice in the promise of God. Does this tell me that God is a specific way? For example, he is holy. I should tremble before him. He is just. I should seek refuge in his son. When you hear the angels say, holy, 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 with Isaiah, what do you do? I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Confess your sins. When God is shown to us to be a consuming fire, tremble and flee to his son. When God says he's gracious and merciful, say to the Lord, thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for choosing and calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Doctrine must lead to doxology. Let us know our doctrines, know the truth as a way of bringing glory and praise to God. And not only the calling upon God's name, not only on giving praise to God, but he also says to serve him. In verse 9, the whole public worship of God. Now, God can be served in our day-to-day lives. We are to serve God by glorifying him in all of our manner of conduct. Then there's a specific way of serving God that relates directly to worshiping God. So there is worship of God that is indirect, offered by means of the creature. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You shall honor your father and your mother, those sorts of things. Those are all done for the sake of God, but the direct object is men, other people, in other words. Then there is that service of God that is directly offered to him, which we call worship or serving him. Not only just the aspect of calling upon the name of the Lord, but the whole public worship of God will be conducted by these renewed elect tongues, by these lips that have been purified, by this language that is caused to be holy unto the Lord. A worship service not serving us, but serving God, where God is lifted up, God is exalted. This is why God converts our lip. This is why he chooses and purifies and cleanses our lip. This is why he causes it to shine with the beauty of holiness so that we may worship him in all things. So not only just doxology and a word of praise to God, but also in the whole worship of God. That is the end of our salvation. The goal to which it shoots is the worship of God. We are saved to serve. Again, not in the general sense, but primarily and specifically in the service that we offer to God. This is the end and goal, the completion, the consummation of our salvation. We are saved to worship God according to his will or in truth, according to the power and presence of his spirit in spirit and in truth. Let us then heartily enter into God's worship We may pray to God, we may worship God in private, in our closet, Jesus talks about that, in secret where no one else is. We may worship God as households, as little flocks in the dwellings of Jacob, but especially when God calls us to his corporate worship, 
This one lip, this purified tongue, this language of confession of truth should lead us to worship God even together through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says that they should serve with one consent. To serve him with one consent. Now this is a very interesting term. It means to serve him with one shoulder. Because when you would have a yoke that would be born, you would use the shoulders to carry it. When the spies went into Canaan and they had those giant clusters of grapes, where did they carry them? On their shoulder. They bore the burden together. The yoke was placed over them and they carried it together. God says that the people who have these cleansed lips, who have a confession that is true and according to God, who have abandoned the worldly babble and all of its confused languages, this lip, this tongue, this language will cause them to worship with one consent, with one shoulder, as those under the same yoke. Please turn over to Psalm 122, page 658. We see an example of this in the Psalms themselves. Page 658. Starting at verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together, whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. Verse 8, For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. Notice here, what do the people of God do to each other with respect to God's worship? Let us, this is called an exhortation. This is the hortative mood. Let us do something together. What is it? Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us go to worship God. Let us come into the holy city. And God, I'm going to pray that you give peace to this holy city for the sake of whom? Me and mine? No, for my brethren and companions' sake, because of the house of God, the worship of Almighty God conducted in Jerusalem, I'm going to pray, bless this city for the sake of my brethren and companions who have said to me, let us go up and worship God. They're coming together with one shoulder, with one consent to bear the yoke of the worship of Almighty God with joy and festal praise to God himself. Please turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, page 1,213. 1, 2, 1, 3. Hebrews chapter 10. Concerning the worship of God and bearing it together with one shoulder, with one consent. We'll start at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, doesn't, doesn't this concern the personal salvation of each individual believer? Yes. But guess what else it concerns? Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that has promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Notice there. The apostles of Christ put together our personal salvation, entering into right relationship with God through the blood of Christ with what? The church, Christian fellowship, coming together to worship God. Why? Because we have a priest through which we can come directly into God's presence, and it's not me, and it's not the Pope, and it's not the other bishops. It's no one except our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Through his body, as our great high priest, through the veil that is his flesh, being sprinkled in our consciences and washed in our bodies, we come together into his presence. We do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but rather we exhort one another. We encourage, let us go into the house of God. Let us grow in grace and in knowledge. Seeing there is this day in which God will judge the world in righteousness, let us be godly people. Let us fear the Lord. You see then that God, by bringing us under the same yoke, has said, you must encourage one another. You are a body together. You are various parts of one another. So come together in that manner. I note then that God's doctrines, the lip that he purifies, the language he changes, God's doctrines are to lead to a unified worship of God, serving God in unity. Do you ever wonder why Satan works so hard to divide up the people of God? Well, he doesn't want us to remember that we have a great high priest. He doesn't want us to encourage one another unto love and good works. He doesn't want us to say, let us go into the house of the Lord. He wants us to say, there? I'm going to kick at those sacrifices. Do you remember Hophni and Phinehas fornicating at the door of the tabernacle? What did they make the people want to do? Go worship God? No. The people kicked at the sacrifice. Well, I don't want to go there. Those scumbags run the loot. They're horrible. They ask me before I even offer my sacrifice. I want that piece. Give it to me now. And you say, no. They say, give it. No, come. Give me that. These men are greedy. They're covetous. They're wicked. They're hypocritical. And the people say, I don't want to worship God. God says just the opposite. Exhort, encourage one another. Let us then encourage one another in the faith. You know that showing up to worship actually encourages the saints. You see another believer there. Oh, I'm not in this alone. I'm not in this by myself. I've got others to assist, to labor together in prayer and in worship, in calling on the name of the Lord. With one consent, with one shoulder, we bear this yoke together. Is a saint discouraged? Encourage one another. Are the saints in need? Assist them in the bowels of Christ. Give them those things needful for the body. Are God's people persecuted? He says to pray for them as if you were in the body with them. Let us never be a stumbling block to the godly. In fact, because 
God's people are his and they belong to him. When we cause God's people to stumble, you know how God thinks of that? You're offending me. That's how God sees it. You have offended one of my little ones. I take that personally, God says. That's my child. I love that boy. I love that girl. I have adopted them into my household. What do you mean casting stumbling blocks before my people? What do you mean offering them sacrifices to idols? What do you mean teaching them the doctrine of Jezebel and the Nicolaitans? No! Do not touch my people. Encourage them. Cause them to grow in grace and knowledge. In our words, in our deeds, in our prayers, in the bowels and affections of Christ, we are to encourage and lift one another up and raise together the burden that God has placed upon us. This is the point. This is why God purifies the doctrine and the lip, so that we may praise him together, so that we may lift up a word of doxology to him, so that we may worship and serve him together and encourage one another in the faith. Please turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3 to verse 10, page 944. Verse 10. From beyond the river of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. You Gentiles, I've got you covered. You Jews, I've got you covered too. Though my wrath is poured out on both Jew and Gentile and all nations, I have a plan. Again, he's encouraging his people. He's encouraging the remnant. In the midst of the sufferings and the trials, remember, I'm going to restore what was lost, the purity of language. I'm going to cause my worship to ascend by these purified tongues. And I'm going to go beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, and I'm going to bring my suppliants. God had dispersed his people. They had a land. They inherited it. They abused it. God judged them, and then God cast them out. Now he says, I'm bringing them back. I'm going to restore them. They are my suppliants. Now a suppliant is someone who offers incense. Wrath is coming. Incense is offered. The wrath is turned away. They seek mercy. They seek grace. They have no worth. They have no merit. How do I know that? Because they got kicked out of the land. They didn't deserve the least of God's mercies. They had no free will. They had no ability in themselves. But God, by his Holy Spirit, restores them to the promise, restores them to the inheritance. And what do they offer in return? They bow their knee and supplicate him and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Save me from what I deserve. Even the daughter of my dispersed, he says. Do you remember the daughters of Israel? This is a way God addresses the entire nation by its weakest point. Who are the weakest? The little girls, right? The daughters of Israel. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Do you remember this in David's dirge? Why? Because the Philistines had overcome your king, all of the heirs to the throne, they're all demised and dead. Therefore, weep over Saul. Isaiah 4.4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of whom? The daughters of Zion. And shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from amidst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. 
God's wrath will purify the daughters of Jerusalem or the whole nation. In other words, the whole city. The daughters of God's dispersed means this people is in a weakened condition. They're kicked out of the land and I'm going to restore them all. Even the weakest among them will come and be restored. And they shall bring mine offering. The Jews shall be restored in the worship of God. After God judges the nations, after he purifies their lip, after he gives them a united worship and a doxology of praise to God, that impure lip that the Jews had when they cursed Jesus and called for his death and called for his blood upon them and their children, that lip too will be purified. They will come and be restored to the worship of God. The helpless people will be recovered and glory will be to the Lord our God. And thus far the explanation of Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, a pure language. Pure language. 